Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Happy New Year to all, as we tell you our combined top 10 films of 2019. Then we pause as we look back at some of the film industry people who passed in 2019. After that, it's back to fun as we join in with awards season and we hand out our version of the awards. Finally, we talk about what we're looking forward to watching in 2020. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror films. Although, to be honest, after the recent political events in the UK, I am hoping for that long-awaited zombie apocalypse to strike this year. Hi, my name is Graham. My main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. And just like Jeff, I'm looking forward to greeting our new robot overlords. Hi, my name is Neil, and I just like films. Britain just elected the zombies, I thought. Before we continue, I have to say, guys, Happy New Year to you both. It's the first time we've been together for a while. Happy New Year to you. And Neil, you. I'm glad you returned safely from that holiday in Cyprus. <laughs> That's shocking. <laughs> that is terrible. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad you're safe. You've waited all this time to say that. I did. So, before we talk about films, let's talk some more about us. The podcast has gone from strength to strength this year. Lads... What have been some of your highlights? Well, for me, 2019 was an amazing year. We doubled the number of plays we had in 2018. We picked up over 100 regular listeners on Spotify, as well as our top three shows of all time were all recorded in 2019. Show 36 is still the winner. Cue the music. Thank you, Warren Ringham, for that show. That was brilliant. Coming in at number two, show 38, Phil's Look at the Movies. And finally, show 55, Blue Moon and Falkland Square. In addition, we have redesigned our website to make it even easier to find our shows onwards and upwards for 2020. For me, it was the number of foreign language films we reviewed, with particular thanks to Deck for his reviews and to Netflix for making so many of them more accessible. And meeting so many awesome film industry people. i got to say, Neil, you've driven a lot of that foreign language films and two really interesting pod shorts. Mainly because you don't like them. <laughs> and mainly some interesting shorts in 2019. What plans have you got for 2020? Start off by telling everybody to watch Parasite, and then we'll go from there. More on that later. Well, my highlights, it's been a blast. When we started, I never thought we'd come as far as we have and meet the incredible people we have. All of the interviews are special to me as people have given up their time for us. However, if I was held down to say, if you don't answer who your favourites are, you'll have to watch Neil play golf, <laughs> I'd have to say Rupert Christie, Daniel Gadd, Film music, yeah, love it. Cue the music creator, Warren Ringham. New Zealand filmmaker, Stefan Harris, talking about his wonderful film, Blue Moon, which hopefully we'll get to see this year. Director Phil Stubbs, letting us see Last Chances. And there was that on-set report from Falkland Square in a very hot August bank holiday. Also a huge shout out to the contributors who have made this podcast special. It's Phil Foster, Elijah, Lucy, Declan, Sam Pope, Hadil, Darren, Paul, M and Emma. Without you, it would still be three old guys sitting around a table moaning about the state of films today, or in Neil's case, moaning about everything. Can we get on with it? Okay, time to reveal our favourite films of 2019. 
we'll get on with it. But we've still got some of that festive wine left. Neil, top my red at please. <laughs> okay, so this is how this section was put together. We all listed our top 10 movies of the year, and I aggregated them together. That's aggregated, Neil. We go through the films in reverse order. Did you have trouble spelling it? Yes, I did. We go through the films in reverse order and try to give some of the reasoning as to why they're in our top 10. In the interest of not adding unduly to anyone's stress, I will say now, there are a few surprises in this list. So, Graham, over to you for the first of the two films that came in at joint number 10. Okay. The first of our two films at number 10 is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This is the ninth movie from Quentin Tarantino. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio as TV cowboy Rick Dalton, Brad Pitt as his stunt double Cliff Booth, and Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, with support from Margaret Qualley as Pussycat, Dakota Fanning as Squeaky, and Al Pacino as Marvin Schwartz. Now, this movie is Tarantino's retelling of the Manson murders, where a group of Charles Manson's followers sadistically murder actress Sharon Tate and her friends at home in the Hollywood Hills. We all like this movie, but why is the story of a grisly murder that happened over 50 years ago so engaging? Because they got the murder right in this film. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Uh, it's well made, and in parts, it's it's absolutely brilliant, but it is overlong. I'm sure there are lots of scenes that could have been saved for DVD extras. The Bruce Lee scene was unnecessary, I thought, um, and I enjoyed it for a couple of hours. And I got a bit bored, but yeah, it wasn't in my top ten, but it's still an extraordinary film. I'll watch it again, see if it improves. For me, nobody edits Tarantino, do they? And And I think that's a very fair point, and it's interesting that you know, in the last two shows that we've done with the contributors, this has come in at number one in at least two occasions. I think it is overlong. It is self-indulgent. I also think, and I stand by, you know, what Adil has said, there is an, a racism at the core of parts of this film that, you know, needs to be spoken about, needs to be brought out there. I think its most powerful scenes are the scenes that involve the Manson family. In other Mm. words, when Brad Pitt's character goes to the ranch, based on a real incident that happened, although a much darker ending than shown in the film. And, of course, the ending. And who doesn't love seeing hippies getting killed? Here we go again. (laughs) Back on that old trip. I I thought Pitt was great. But as I said, that, that whole sequence, the Lancer sequence, where DiCaprio talks about acting, you know, he's got that bit with the book as well with the little girl. Yeah. And I just thought, enough already, you know. But the recreations of 69, the the TV westerns, and I know I go on about it a bit, but the whole sequence with James Stacey, when you see him ride off in his motorbike, knowing what happened to Stacey, uh, that was tremendous. It looks good. As a side note, I also like the fact of the radio station that they put in it. Do you know the story behind this? No. So they actually found an old defunct radio station and people had recorded it and they'd got hold of the recordings, went through it and picked out actual adverts and things that were on there. The music that they played was music that would even play on the station at that time. That's on the soundtrack. Mm, that's on There's the a soundtrack. lot of it yeah, on the yeah. soundtrack. You know, even to the advert for the Illustrated Man. And there's a Batman and Robin thing where you can be taken in the Batmobile to the Batcave. It's a yeah. prize wow. for a competition. They're running on the radio station. Very fun. Very fun. I loved it. I think I liked it more than you guys, actually. I, I enjoyed the bit with them filming Lancer. I liked the 
piece with the young girl. I thought that was very interesting in the book and how he was the actually the book he was reading was actually about his own life, although seen from a different angle. And I enjoyed the end. I thought it was very fun. I didn't get it at all. I thought there was going to be something horrible happening at the end. Instead, it was wonderful. (laughs) Instead, (laughs) it was very Tarantino, very violent and very interesting. Very interesting take. I should have been ready for it. It was just just a little bit of editing and it might have been superb. It Mm. might have been even my number one. I just thought it was great. I've got to agree with Neil. number of our listeners put it in at number one. So... Who are we to argue with our listeners? Well, you. <laughs> to name one. <laughs> to name one, yeah. Well, Carry that, on. Sorry. At that point, let's move on to the other film in joint 10th position, Hotel Mumbai. Now, for me, this was the highlight of the Cheltenham Film Festival. It's a taunt recreation of the events surrounding the 2008 terror attacks in Mumbai, with the focus being the attack on the Taj Hotel. With its international cast, including Army Hammer and Jason Isaac, the focus is really on the Indian cast as typified by Dev Patel. Their portrayal of real-life people who put their lives on the line for their guests is both moving and scary. The film is directed by first-time director Anthony Maris, who does an excellent job. In fact, it's very reminiscent of Paul Greengrass and his film United 93 in its brutal and unsentimentalised recreation of events. Some of it is absolutely shocking. For instance, I'll throw in here, that when the terror attacks struck, they knew that the nearest fully armed police squad or anti-terror squad was 800 miles away. So they had to get them in. And of course, in that time, more people were being killed, more hostages were being taken. And there is real anger that as these terrorists are going around, they're constantly on radio and telephone to people back in Pakistan who were encouraging them. And those people were never caught. The things they were making them do from the safety of hundreds of miles away, was absolutely shocking. Sky have been showing this film recently, which means it didn't get a wide cinema release. And I would urge you to catch up with it. It is absolutely unforgettable. My daughter and Nick, her husband, actually put it at the top of their list. They thought it was absolutely superb. As Nick said, I paid for the whole seat. I only needed the edge. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. that tense. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a moment in the film, without giving anything away, because a lot. I know with this top ten, a lot of people have seen many of the films, but they won't have seen this. There's a moment where you think, oh, no. The Americans are going to escape and save the day. The Hollywood moment. The Hollywood moment in this film. No sooner have you thought that than they undercut it brilliantly. If you thought United 93 was good, wait till you see this. This now brings us to position number eight in our list, The Sister Brothers. Released in the UK in 2019, so hence it makes this list, director Jacques Odia, a director of Our Prophet and Rust and Bone, creates an outsider's view of the Western genre. Cocksure, hot-headed and alcoholic Charlie sisters, Joaquin Phoenix, and lumbering, ready-for-retirement Eli sisters, John C. Riley, are guns for hire. Their chemistry makes this film utterly engaging, even during the more violent scenes, and they can't operate without each other. The world around them is changing so fast. Towns spring up, which weren't there three months ago. Can I ask a question on that? Well, my question is, you say the times are changing fast. What time period is it saying? Well, uh, 2019. Um, it's, <laughs> 1870, I think like. so, yeah. So it's coming to towards the end of the cowboy era. Well, not really. The Western era was 1865 to... They are are at the end of it. That's why towns are popping up, because it's not so dangerous. 
Eli buys a toothbrush and discovers a flushable toilet. The joy on his face when he sees the flushable toilet. Charlie wants things to remain as they are. Eli wants to move forward. There's a twist as well in their relationship. You find some things out. The title may be a play on words, but these are men without women who have become emotionally stagnant and so terribly lonely. It sounds mawkish, is it? I haven't seen it, so I'm, I'm asking the question. If it wasn't for the violence... I would say, yes, this is a really good character piece about two men who come into the end of their days as guns for hire. But uh, there's two other characters come into this and the whole thing spins around. It's a very clever film. So is it a classic Western or is it... No. You've got a... Fo- no. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's, very much, it's very much a, a modern Western. With There is a lot of dialogue in it. Mm. They have moments of extreme violence. And as Neil says, they cannot function separately as killers, but together they're absolutely yeah. deadly. Even, and it's the dynamic... Even normal life, they can't really function without each other. And they really need to settle down... And, and, and reevaluate their lives before their lives kill but them. Charlie is struggling. Eli's probably the more well balanced one. And John C. Riley is superb. Joaquin Phoenix is always good. But John C. Riley, again, is fantastic. If he stays away from those silly comedies, he does. Do you mean if he stays away from Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell, um, yes, that's that's the main one. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that was one of the things that surprised me the most was. What an incredible actor Mm. Riley is. And I was just, hang on, this cannot be the same guy. Is this his brother? Yeah. You know, it was very, very good. And I mean, to play against Joaquin Phoenix and be seen as, oh, he's a good actor as well. He held his own in the face of uh, Joaquin's sort of ultra-violent, drunken, he's just like a whirlwind. Yes, yes. And Riz Ahmed and Jake Gyllenhaal aren't actually slouches. Okay. Yes. So that's it. Great film, great film. Graham, over to you for seventh place. Right. In seventh place, The Irishman. Neil, regular contributor Declan, and I went to see the premiere of this movie on the big screen back in November, directed by Martin Scorsese. It's the story of a mafia hitman, Frank Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro, and his involvement with the head of the Teamsters Union, larger-than-life character, Jimmy Hoffa. The cast also includes Joe Pesci, who steals every scene he's in. (laughs) The entire movie is told from the perspective of Frank, who's in a care home for the elderly and is looking back on his life. So it's very much a retrospective. This is classic Scorsese, though, masterfully directed, beautifully shot with excellent set dressing and a good musical score. If you're a Scorsese fan, you're in for a treat. At three and a half hours long, a lot of people complained about the length, but for me, it just flew by. Gents, your thoughts. Is this a mafia masterpiece or after three and a half hours, did your backsides need to be digitally de-aged? Would you like to go first, Neil? I think the film is worth watching for Joe Pesci alone. (laughs) Yeah. He he is, he came out of retirement and absolutely nailed the role of the mafia boss. He's quiet, efficient and really scary. It is what it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll go and kill him. Yeah. Uh, a masterpiece of nostalgia, the digital de-aging, I thought detracted from the film, but that apart, it's an outstanding achievement. Do you remember, lads, because <laughs> we're of a certain age. Uh, it, is, it, is a too, it is too long. Okay. 
So we're of a certain age, would you agree? And you probably remember well, back you in two the seventies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. remember back in the seventies. You're a lot older. Those Thank you. <laughs> KTL record collections. Oh, yeah. for together. God's sake, and, he's and not this is going what, there. Yeah, this is what this is. This is Scorsese, KTL record selection. We'll have a bit of this, bit of that from this film, a bit from a Departed, a bit from Taxi Driver. And the film becomes a cliche of a cliche. Oh. And it is far too long. Neil's quite correct. The de-aging, some of it is just painful to watch, to be quite honest. And, and Graham, you're the one that picked up on this. There's a scene near the beginning when he beats up a shopkeeper. Uh, that was funny. And he beats him up. You know, yes, he looks like he's late 30s, early 40s, yeah. but he shuffles along like an old guy nearing, you know, the end of his 70s. Oh, like De Niro is. Young people don't beat up guys like that. So that sort of distracted for me. I think that there are good parts. I thought Pesci was okay. De Niro was brilliant. His setback for me because Frank Sheeran was known throughout his life as a liar and quite possibly never actually killed anybody after World War II. But that's another story that detracts from this. I thought Pacino was good as Jimmy Hoffa. So, yeah, it's, it's entertaining. I just don't think it's a classic. I would go as far as to say... I don't really think Scorsese's made a classic great movie for years. Well, the last thing I saw by him was The Silence. Thing. Silence. Silence, just silence, yeah. And that was painful to watch. That was a hard film. It was painful because it was just a harder film. He pulled no punches, he tried different things in it, whereas this is, as I said, it's K-Tel. No, no, no. I think I agree he's returned to his comfort zone, but yeah. what a comfort zone. He really, really... Nails that. And I, I thought it was a genuinely interesting film. I liked the fact that we saw the street-level hoodlums and the, and the street-level organisers of the mafia. But you saw in Goodfellas, you had much more of a portrait of a streetwise, low-life mafioso, mm-hmm. you know, someone on the fringes of it, than this was Sheeran. Suddenly this guy's there involved in Kennedy, you know, the Bay of, Bay of Pigs. Pigs. yeah. You know, or the killing of Jimmy Hoffa. Really? I'm surprised he didn't bloody find the aliens at Roswell because that was the only thing that was missing. Oh, oh, that's a bit harsh. No, I thought it was very good. And I did preface my initial review of this or my original review of this with the words that if you like Scorsese movies, this is a real treat. But if you've seen enough Scorsese movies and you're bored with it, then you're not going to enjoy this. Yeah, and when I started off, I liked K-Tel. Anyway, okay, so we we have differences there. Thank on our- God you discovered uh, film music, Jeff. That's all I can yeah. say because yeah, yeah, pop you music happy. is shocking if you were listening to KTEL. Well, you'd be pleased to hear for this next one Neil's going to talk about. I haven't seen, so I have no comment to make. I don't think either of you have seen it. No, you? no, it's, oh, good. Num- I'm on my it's number 20 no. on my to watch uh, list. Uh, Hadil put it high in his, didn't he put it in Oh, God, one? yeah, number two. Uh, Pain and Glory. Pedro Amaldavar's mostly autobiographical film, more pain than glory, if truth be told, with the outstanding Antonio Banderas playing the lead as Salvador Marlo. Marlo is a former cinematic enfant terrible. Hang on, Neil. Are you trying to get in as many foreign words as you can in your review? Yes. Okay, just to confuse me. Now in his autumn years, he is no longer the renegade who splashed the screen with colour and waved the flag for society's sexual and political outcasts. He's afflicted with creative paralysis and debilitating illnesses, migraines, tinnitus, panic attacks, relentless back pain and a reflex to choke on solid food. To ease his torment, Salvador experiments for the first time with heroin, but as a remedy... 
If there is one, it must come from inside. There are many flashbacks to his childhood, remembering the times with his mother, Penelope Cruz, who's hilarious. It's so, so serious and yet so funny. Um, a monologue written long ago for an estranged actor friend is found and reconciliation with him begins. Thus starts the long, bumpy road to recovery. In Amaldivar's hands, everything just works. This is his most personal film and many would say his best. Now, when we spoke with The Irishman, we said that there was a lot of Scorsese's greatest hits that came into it. Now, I haven't seen this film, so I can't comment on that. But people have said Al Modavar has made a film that captures pieces from his earlier films. Is that correct or not? It is autobiographical. It kind of has to, really, I think. That suggests that many of his other films are autobiographical. Could be. I think we'd have to go into that a lot more. I don't know. I've never huge... seen any of his films. No. And, and it's certainly listening to Hadil's recommendation and his review of it, thought, all oh, right, I need to go and do a bit of work here. Yeah. I'm going to watch this and then I'm going to go back and watch some other this, his this films. Is, it's terribly sad. It's funny very funny in places it doesn't hold back on the subjects it covers in many ways very sweet it's a guy coming from writer's block and basically taking heroin because he cannot think of anything else to do oh yeah i always do that oh yeah yeah <laughs> you whenever i'm just about to come to see jeff <laughs> And yeah, it's driving is. me to drugs. I just came out of the film. I saw it at the cinema and I came out thinking, wow, I'm putting this number one. Well, there was you, Darren and Hadil, who all said it was amazing. So yes. it's definitely on my list. And the next one to push for is Parasite, which only arrives in this country in uh, February. February. Oh, okay. Good job. You haven't seen it then, Neil? No, it is, <laughs> no. yeah. Um, I, I must blame somebody else for me being able to see it, I'm afraid. <laughs> it is out in several countries, by the way. Not in this one, now. Okay. And if you remember when Lucy reviewed it as her number one, she is still pressing bargain on talking about it because it's not released yet. It is in very in a number of countries. Not in the UK. No, but there are a number of countries that have seen it already. Okay. In fact, it's a 2019 film. The death penalty is legal in America. <laughs> you can't do that in this country. <laughs> you get it. How did we jump from Parasite to the death penalty <laughs> for watching films out, out of region? You yeah. wait till you see par Parasite. Right. Okay, then. <laughs> so, interesting one. I may actually watch that, Neil. Thank you very much. Back still with you for the fifth position, then. The favourite. Oh, yes, please. Ten Oscar nominations, one win, Olivia Colman. Director Yorgos Lanthimos created a costume drama about the reign of Queen Anne. Literally fizzes with intrigue and devilry. The three leads of Olivia Colman, Rachel Weitz and Emma Stone are a profanely funny trio. As Rachel Weitz fights for control, Emma Stone fights for revenge and Olivia Colman fights for attention. There's sadness, particularly Queen Anne, who's got all gout and puke, whose 17 rabbits re represent the 17 children she's lost. Rachel Weitz, a razor-sharp wit, rules in her place, ensuring her husband gets what she wants in the war with France and Emma Stone, a distant relative, and not one to be in the dirt for long is the one who's fights her way to the top or fights her way upwards anyway. It's utterly compelling and best of all, Lanthimus makes us care about all three women. It's utterly compelling and best of all, in all the shenanigans, there's a 
real fun to be had. I think for me, one thing that got me with this film is how overlooked Emma Stone was. I thought she was tremendous. A lot of praise went to the other two. I don't know whether it's because they're British and I think in the they, UK. No, I think they just had Stone to pick one between the two supporting but she's the catalyst, actors. I think, more than anything else. She is, yes, but film is about Queen Anne. I was surprised how much of this is true. Hmm. Yeah, other than the rabbits, because they did not keep rabbits as pets at that point. They'd have been in a pot so fast you wouldn't have noticed them. Well, we know each 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 of the three characters existed. The two things that, that are missing are the, the misrepresentation of the rabbits, but I understand where they go in the film, so no problem with that. You have to you have to get Queen Anne. You have to get some sympathy for Queen and, Anne, and, don't you? Yeah, and so they use that as a device. I have no yes. problem with that. The fact her husband isn't mentioned and he was still alive, part of this part of the film, that story. But we're all missing the one thing that is genuinely a piss-off thing in this film that stopped me from rating it higher. The fisheye lens, for God's oh, sake! Well, that's that's it's all over the film, though, isn't it? He's changing it, the way the the camera angles go on almost everything. It's it's you're not in a one place at any one time, but and it you're steps not, you outside you of the a, film. Well, you don't get a a standard way of looking at it, do you? Because he's changing things all the time to destabilise you. And that fisheye lens was one of them. Okay, it's so only one scene. No, it was more than one scene. Yeah, there's two you scenes. Go back, more than two, Neil. <laughs> but the, the thing is, Three. you want. Well, my take on this is by using tricks and lenses like that, you're stepping outside of the film, so it doesn't help in that regard. Graham, you're shaking your I head. I didn't have a I'm problem. I'm sure in agreement, but I'll let you know what you've got to say. I, 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 I didn't, didn't have a problem with that. I didn't have a problem. The thing I liked about this film was it was a completely character-driven story. The characters did things, things happened because the characters did things, and it drove the story forward. And I really, really loved this film. It was so different. It was so interesting to watch. It was hysterically funny. And it was just so outside the norm from, you know, the normal stuff that comes out of Hollywood. And you think, oh, is this a rom-com? Is this a historical piece? Is this a period piece? Is this a costume drama? No, this is bonkers from beginning to end. (laughs) And I just went along for the ride and And loved every minute of it. So rude to each other. And they are so rude. Yeah, exactly. They are so rude to each other. Okay. Liked it. Just really liked it. Me too. It was... It was good. It could have been better. Um, let's move on to fourth. And we've got two titles for this film. we got the European title, Le Mans 66, and the far better American title, Ford versus Ferrari. Does what it says on the tin. That is my only complaint about this film, really, is I think it should have used that far more expressive American title. No, I think you're right on that one. Thank you very much, Neil. It's a That's pleasure. That's a seal of approval that Thanks I aspire to every day. <laughs> it works on a number of levels, this film. is the sporting level, and then there's the business level. Some people have put it down by calling it a dad's film, which is, I think is quite shocking and ageist. But it has a surprising amount of depth to it. And let's be fair, at least one other of our contributors has made this number one. And she's not a dad. No, she's not a dad. That period of 64 to 66 covered in the film makes for a fascinating story. And the sport is definitely of that period. The business side is very much of today, as Henry Ford verbally abuses his workers to deliver more. As for performances, well, Christian Bale, he's got to be nominated for an Oscar for his role as Ken Miles. He does the Brummie accent very well. He does it. But it's the levels of characterization within that. You know, he's a family man with issues, he's well-rounded and totally believable. 
Matt Damon's also good. How many times have we said that? Yeah. Oh, this will be the first. I like Damon, but he doesn't get under the skin of the character as much as Carol Shelby. When I was reading up on this film after I watched it, pretty much everything that I was reading about Ken Miles had been captured in that performance. But there was a lot of Shelby's womanising, for example, that isn't touched on this film. It's a very, I'm focused on delivering you know, the goods of the win on this. But there's a lot more to Shelby than that. Two final things to say. Firstly, I was impressed how, in a cleverly underplayed subplot, the effects of World War II and these characters, especially Miles, is brought out. It's mentioned throughout, never forced, but it's constantly there. And secondly, first-rate music score from Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders. As a car racing movie, this one's a winner. First past the flag for me. Oh, so if there was a film I was most excited to watch, it came on late, didn't it? It wasn't really advertised hugely. It was, it was sort of a few days before and then suddenly it was out. So I booked immediately. I wasn't disappointed. I've recommended it to everyone. Matt Damon and Christian Bale, as you say, are perfect as the two perfectionists. Bale in particular, this kind of rich Ford crass versus bankrupt Ferrari class. That's a good point, actually. Uh, I didn't mention that, but you're absolutely right. The Italians and the way the Italians project themselves in this film, if you like European, is very much with class, as opposed to, as you say, Neil, the crass of Henry Ford. Yeah, and Henry Ford the second. He wasn't even... In, well, that was pointed out no, to him, wasn't it? You're not even Henry Ford. Yeah, you're just the sequel. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, <laughs> the star of the show, I thought, is the Le Mans track, Eight and a Half Miles of Country Road. And it's a uh, motive. It's out of sight of the pit cruising crowd. An spectacularly dangerous place to race. Yeah. Um, and, and there's little chance of survival if you're out of sight. Miles and Shelby are a duo I, I could watch more of. Mm. Yeah, it's a winner. Graham? I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it? I haven't seen it. I was... Uh, I, I think was, you'll like it. I was swanning across the Atlantic going to... Oh, uh, yeah. Going to Georgia when it came out, and I just couldn't fit it into my schedule. So, again, it's on my list of 35 films from 2019. It's not I have only to catch a dad film, Graham. It's a granddad film, so you're okay. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much, Neil. <laughs> Great film. Would probably been higher in our charts if Graham had seen it as well. So we're into our top three. And at number three is my choice for film of the year, Green Book. Yes, Phil, I know you're disgusted by that choice, <laughs> but actually, it's true, it's great. Possibly you can call it a dad's film, but you know what? If they make dad's films like this, more people will be going to the cinema more often. It's one of the few times over the years I've, I agree with the Academy Awards selection of best film of the year, first time since Titanic, actually. It's had its share of criticism about its relationship between the black piano player, Dr. Shirley, understated and powerful performance from Mahershala Ali and tough guy minder Tony Lip, Viggo Mortensen, in what I think is one of his best ever performances and so much against type for Mortensen. There's a lightness of tone throughout the film, which you'd expect with somebody like Peter Farrelly in the past has directed things like There's Something About Mary. But I think that lightness of tone captures and makes the racist sequences in this film much more powerful. The friendship seems organic, and ultimately, it's a really uplifting film where people learn, where people have advanced by the end of the film to where they were at the beginning. It's full of memorable scenes, and Graham, I know we've spoken about this many times, that tyre-changing scene, yeah. you know, where the car breaks down, Mortensen's out, changing the car, where Ali's sitting in the back of the car, and these 
poor black workers in the fields are just watching them like they've come down from Mars, which I think is just tremendous. I've seen it three times so far this year, and I look forward to watching it again. Brilliant. Uh, And I enjoyed it. I know it had a lot of criticism. I know Spike Lee came out with that famous quote about magical Negroes, and he thought that this fitted into that. And I don't see that at all. I think that Mahershala Ali's character is just superb. And the fact that all of the transformation happens to Viggo Morgenstern's character uh, negates what Spike Lee thinks about magic Negroes supporting white people. And, and I, yet I, I, I never see Spike Lee come out and complain about all these films that rewrite 40s, Hollywood. Oh, yeah. Films like, you know, Gangster Squad and Captain America, where, you know, they, they have these multinational teams or multiracial teams, yeah. which would never have happened. This is a true story. However you cut it, it's true. There was loads of things going on in it that, you know, the lucky rock and things like that and the letters home to his wife being Oh, that written. was hilarious. And those little moments, they just it's just a layering process. You've got a really interesting story at the bottom, then you've got interesting characters, and then you've got these little things that get sprinkled across the top. Just make a fully complete film. I yeah. loved it. And to the other level of racism where the Deep South yeah. policeman, yeah. you know, accuses the Italians, he doesn't rate them any more <laughs> than he does the blacks. And that kicks off another sequence in the film. And that is brilliant. And that is brilliant. And again, Bobby Kennedy comes to the rescue as well. It was just so clever. Yeah. I, did, I thought it was brilliant. Um, similar themes to the Driving Miss Daisy and the in- Intouchable, it's a French film that was remade as The Upside, I think. It's a great feel-good odd couple yeah. buddy movie, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, the odd yeah, couple, that's yeah, a good one. The odd yeah. couple, yeah. yeah. The fried chicken sequence has come into mind as we go away. Yeah, handsomely made and very watchable. Definitely, definitely. Okay, Neil. Well, second best film of 2019, Toy Story 4. Could Pixar top Toy Story 3? Well, yes, uh, just. Uh, Josh Cooley directs with a script by Andrew Stanton and Stephanie Folsom. Uh, Cooley keeps action and character in thoughtful balance. Tale begins with the same themes, Woody being edged out of the picture. No one needs him to plan things. Bonnie doesn't consider him the main toy. There's a toy that lords it over lesser toys in Gabby Gabby, Christina Hendricks, very, very creepy, and a a glass-eyed doll of yesteryear who has a busted voice box and badly needs a working one to replace it. Gabby Gabby is guarded by henchmen, ventriloquist dummies, whose lurching gait suggests that in a far-off act of vengeance, the gangster doll broke their legs. It's very creepy. I said, definitely not a kids' film. I mean, they're not really kids' but film anyway. But you can anyway, say that for all of them, yeah, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. But this one definitely isn't anything to do with kids. I mean, it, what elevates the tale, I think, is the reappearance of Bo Peep. Uh, Annie Potts, an adventurer like Woody, but so much better at it than him. She's smart, self-possessed, literally and figuratively. Genuinely funny, particularly Buzz's inner voice and Keanu Reeves' Duke Kaboom, (laughs) which I still laugh at. The threat of obsolescence and, by extension, death are everywhere in Toy Story 3 and 4. It's a resonant theme, not likely to sink in with children, but... Well, only grown-ups are liable to be traumatised after it. It's a terrible ending. It really is. I'm. He so, thinks no. I think it's, it's. I thought it was really not terrible in that sense. I mean, I was in tears. Yeah, it was a, quite a tearjerker moment. Mm. Yeah. When I heard of this film, 
you know, the trilogy is so good. Yeah. Why on earth have why, you done why, it? Why, 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 yeah. why? Money, 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 money. Exactly. But then you realise this is Woody's story, that Woody's story wasn't resolved in Toy, in Toy Story mm. 3, so this completes that. You could say that some of the mechanics of the Toy Story films are starting to show through, you know, the, the jeopardy, but it doesn't matter because it works on so many levels. And, you know, that whole bit of, of Woody going on this journey particularly with Forky, who he's training up as he goes. And by the way, Forky, what a fantastic character. He's desperately clinging to him because he wants to be wanted and used and needed. Yes. And that threat of obsolescence, that really got to me. It's when the kids leave home. And what do you do? Yeah, sort of, they don't need you anymore. At at that point, you train the wife. (laughs) (laughs) Get one. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah, okay. but but I think that that was really good, and I do think the darkness. I mean, I think the darkness of where they almost go to hell in Toy Story Three. Oh know, yeah, the furnace mm. yeah. is slightly creepier than the ventriloquist dummies. But that said, I thought the ventriloquist it, 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 dummies were it, yeah. really creepy. I, me too. Yeah, yeah. But it was the walk. It was the it walk, was a walk. It was and so they true. always appeared round corners yeah. and, and then chased them down narrow, confining <laughs> spaces. Pixar seemed to be finding their mojo again. Inside Out a couple of years ago was oh, fantastic. Right. This is brilliant. Everything I'm seeing for Soul coming this year looks really good as well. So fingers crossed that, that they're back to where they should be. And please, no more Brave, no more Finding Dory, just or Monsters University. Stick with original. Or, dare I even mention it, Cars. <laughs> cars 2 and Cars 3. You had to three. go there, didn't you? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, that no, that's terrible. a bummer. That's a bummer. Although so, the original Cars was great. The original Cars is okay. Yeah, I thought I enjoyed it. It's an object in background. Yes. Okay. But then Kung Fu Panda does it far better. <laughs> so we're talking about our films of the year and then we're now talking about Cars. Graham put us all out of our misery. What is number one? And our best film of 2019 is Joker. So we all know this story. The story of Joker, yep, Batman protects the city of Gotham from a bizarre collection of supervillains, chief among them are his arch nemesis, the Joker. So why is a movie with no Batman, no Robin, no Commissioner Gordon or Alfred our top movie of 2019? Why are we so enamoured with the story of a sad clown? Is this movie just sympathy for the devil or the ravings of a lunatic mind? Gentlemen, discuss. One of the things about it is you don't know what's real and what isn't. It's um, not. It's called. It's not a superhero film. It's no. that unreliable narrator exactly through the whole right. damn exactly thing, right. isn't it? The the only thing you know for real, and it's been given to you, is the very end scene is real. It's called Joker. It's not called the Joker because I don't think. And I said this when we reviewed the film a couple of months ago. I would say he was the inspiration for the Joker. If if you take Heath Ledger in something like exactly. The Dark Knight he would be inspired by this character, whereas I don't think he was really the clown prince of evil or something else. And for me, the moment of the year in this film is when he's dancing down the steps to Rock and Roll Part 2. Morally ambiguous. Yes, I suppose Artistically so, yeah. brilliant. And the, the thing that I liked was that I went into this movie expecting a Joker superhero movie, and within 10 minutes... 
I was in a far-off land which bore no relationship to Gotham, and I thought, who the hell is this crazy person? He's not the Joker. What is that true? Is that happening? What? What's? Is that real? Why is she in the lift? Why is she winking at him? Why is he sleeping with her? No, that's not right. Oh, actually, it is right. You're really right. thrown out of sync, and I, aren't you? Yes, and the craziness of his laugh and the weird things that he does, getting in the fridge. What was that all about? Yeah. Did he kill those guys on the subway? What? Hey, no, I have no idea. But it was a roller coaster, and I went along mm. for the ride, and it was great. Working Phoenix is outstanding in this, as finally, usually is finally, people much. are seeing what this man can do. And there are loads of films of example yeah. like there. You were never really. You were never really here. Yeah, um, brilliant. Film. It's, his weight loss alone should garner awards. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was extraordinary. And then putting a bit back on his his change from sack clown to Joker is extraordinary. What a range. Outstanding. I think it kind of blew me away. It, I, I don't believe any of it's real. Uh, I think bits he, of it are real. I think right? he makes most of it up because it's on television in the uh, psychiatric ward where he spends the whole film. No, I, I would say up to the on-air murder is real. And after that, that last bit is I don't, I don't think the uh, there's some of the bits before that. I don't think the affair with Zazie Beats is real. Well, no, you're told that that's not real. You're already given that yeah. information. I don't think he killed the people on the train. I think he did because he's in Arkham. He has to have done something violent to have ended. But he's up on there. in Arkham and he's watching the TV and it's on the TV all the time, as is that program. And the ones that he's watching all the time are the ones that are, he's making up this narrative. And I just thought every single trope of Batman was taken and switched right around. Yes. So Batman's father becomes quite an evil sort of manipulating Trumpish. Yeah. figure people of of gotham are rioting all of the super rap thing as well running in the horrors of the street and just wonderfully that's does, why wonderfully i'm thinking does. it is completely unreliable all of it yeah and it, it's good that we're talking about it and do you know what's best of all not a single avenger in sight <laughs> <laughs> oh Thank you. god right says the grumpy old man in the corner but right. no i've got to agree great film hmm yeah, it was fabulous. So. so that's our combined top 10 for 2019. We will put our individual film top 10s into the show notes. Warm up your Cine World card for more of the same this year. The saddest part of being a film buff is seeing the annual long list of industry names who have passed away. Now, some of these people are household names, many aren't. The comfort we, as film watchers, have is the knowledge that their work is preserved for future generations to see. Rather than read a long list of names out, like last year, we have chosen to approach this section of the show differently. We've picked six names which have had an impact on our film-going lives and which we will briefly discuss. Now, this is not in any way to diminish the achievements of anyone who has passed on in 2019. They may not be mentioned, however, they are certainly not forgotten. Okay, let's talk about the first of the six people we are eulogising. Stanley Donan, 1924 to February 2019. Mr Donan is best remembered today for his work as co-director alongside Gene Kelly on such films as On the Town, It's Always Fair Weather, and of course, the classic Singing in the Rain. Some of the most inventive aspects from many musicals came from Stanley Donan, Gene Kelly, Dancing with Tom and Jerry and Anchors Away, 
the log dance in Seven Brides to Seven Brothers, and Fred Astaire dancing on the walls and ceilings in Royal Wedding. Now, outside of musicals, he also made some great, what you would call Hitchcockian light thrillers like Charade and Arabesque. And while it's true some of his last projects weren't great, there was always something worth watching in them. For me, this is the passing of a true genius of Hollywood's golden age. And films we haven't mentioned, Funny Face 1957, Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire, Bedazzled, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Great film, very funny. Movie Movie, which is just a gem that seems to have been forgotten about now, which is essentially two movies from the 1930s recreated with a great deal of humour. George C. Scott's in them, but it's just a tremendous film. And Saturn 3, science fiction film from 1980, starring Kirk Douglas. And Farrah Fawcett Majors, yes. wasn't it? Yeah, oh, God. yeah. And not a great film. No, not a great film, but there were a lot of production troubles with that film. Oh, really? Um, yeah, the first director left. That always helps. <laughs> Harvey Keitel refused to come back in for reshoots, so his voice had to be dubbed by Michelle Dutrice, who, as a trivia note, did a lot of the uh, audiobooks for Game of Thrones. All right. So I think he genuinely was a, a genius. I mean, you can look back at his life. He was Jewish and was bullied when he was growing up in the 20s and 30s. Is he a member of the Labour Party? Considered Corbyn a friend. And <laughs> I think the, the crowning moment for him was the, the friendship with Gene Kelly, partnership together. He was definitely a perfectionist. He got an honorary Oscar in 1998. But it is some of these latter films where it does seem to fade. But as I said, there are some just genuinely classics. He started off as a dancer, didn't he? And then yes. a choreographer. Yeah. Really? So he understood yeah. all, these, all yeah. that sort of stuff. He tried to get musicals more realistic, taking it away from the Busby Berkeley type. I think that's a really good point because you look at On the Town, uh, 1949, with Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra. It was all filmed on location in New York. And I think that broke the mould, as you say, of the musicals from the 30s. And the likes of Kelly then were able to to do that. Although, interestingly, if you look at something like Singing in the Rain, it's very stylized. It's a period piece already, even then, and just steps away from where On the Town went. So they were always trying something different. It's always fair weather, the dance that Kelly does when he's wearing dustbin lids on his feet. Just bold. And the long dance in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is incredible. For the time, you think... How on earth did they do that? Even when he went away from musicals, you could argue that Movie Movie in part is an old movie musical. I still think he had it. And and for me, if I was forced to say it, I would put Singing in the Rain as one of the 10 greatest films ever made. Yeah, I'd probably agree with you. Yep, yeah, it is a masterpiece. Neil, what about you? Singing in the Rain? Yes, definitely. Great. Absolutely fantastic. What's her name? Debbie Reynolds. Debbie, Debbie Reynolds. Reynolds, I think, sort of um, said that um, it wasn't really Stanley Donan who did the film. It was more the, the actors getting together and all the rest of the crew. But the fact was Stanley Donan was very much a collaborative director, which meant everybody got a view. And if they had a view, they could be, you know, they were entitled to, to air it. I think she's missing the point. Wasn't she 16 when she did that film? Unbelievable. Yes. She had a major telling off from Kelly in one scene. There's a sequence in it around a stepladder. They were doing the dance and she was chewing gum and she put the gum out and put it on the 
stepladder and Kelly didn't see it and he leant against it and it ripped a chunk of his hair out. <laughs> he wasn't a happy man that day. No. no yeah. Stick his head in the freezer, it soon comes off. <laughs> but but I think, Neil, you make the best point of all here is that Donan took, along with Gene Kelly, the musicals that were studio-bound in the 30s and just took them to somewhere completely different. Them. Yeah, And that's what we grew up with. You know, By the time that we were watching films, these were on TV all the time. And I don't think that Donan's contribution can be undervalued. Sadly lost. He certainly was a technical genius, as was our next person, the man behind the visual style of one of my favourite films, Sid Mead, 1933 to December 2019. Sid was a designer and visualist who came to the film industry late in his career. Prior to that, he had created designs for the Ford Motor Company and had his own technical business. He was approached to design the futuristic look of Blade Runner by Ridley Scott after working on Star Trek The Motion Picture. It could be said the films of the early 80s would have looked very different without input from Mr. Mead. He was behind such films as Tron and Aliens, and George Lucas developed the AT-AT based on early designs from Sid Mead. In a fitting tribute, his last film was Blade Runner 2049, a man whose influence will go on and on in the movie world. But also his iconic cyberpunk style has been used extensively in many video games. He has, in fact, as a stylist, gone across genres into video games. Other films of note, 2010, The Year We Made Contact in 1984, Time Cop, Elysium, 2013, great design and look. I thought it was a massive wasted opportunity. Oh, i got to disagree with you there. Oh, shockingly bad. What he captured is the look of a lot of South Africa. Because the director, you're laughing at me here, but Sonia Blanco recreated what Johannesburg was looking at the time to say this is where America could go, and I thought that was an amazingly good idea. Um, Tomorrowland, he was also the designer on that. A strange movie that was not a big hit, despite the star power behind it, but which I loved for his upbeat, positive worldview. I loved that. Thumbs up from me. It was a bit um, preachy. It was a wee bit preachy, I must admit, (laughs) yeah. yeah, Far too cheerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's not often I get to use the words style icon but in this case Sid Mead leaves us many iconic movies where the set dressing enhanced and defined the look of the movie a sad loss he always used to he referred to science fiction as reality head of schedule <laughs> that right? was a nice yeah. line yeah that is brilliant. yeah his, his um, autobiography is called a future remembered oh. it might be worth getting mm-hmm. hold of mm. well we can't interview him now no <laughs> God's sake. Chef. Me. A bit of decorum. A bit of decorum in this section, please. I mean, what did Elon Musk say about him? There are more people in the world who make things than there are people who think of things to make. And you can't underestimate the impact of Blade Runner. Thankfully, you can underestimate the impact of Blade Runner 2049. But the original is so stylish. Shut up. Now, now, you two. But again, another sad loss. Right, you outside now. In the car park. Yeah. Tonight I'm going to sit here drinking beer. So from the a genius behind the camera, let's go to one in front of the camera. Albert Finney, 1936 to February 2019. Although he'd been acting on TV and stage for some time, it was his role in the groundbreaking film Saturday Night and Sunday Morning as angry young man Arthur Seaton 
which made him famous. Throughout the 1960s, it seemed that he could do no wrong. On stage, his performances as Luther and Billy Lyre were unforgettable, and in the film, he went from the Oscar-winning Tom Jones to the box office musical smash of Scrooge. He briefly retired from acting for a while after murder on the Orient Express because all the roles he was being offered required a French accent and for him to put on weight. However, he was to return with many fine films such as Miller's Crossing and ending on a high with Skyfall. While Mr Finney was nominated for five Oscars, he never won one and also turned down a CBE and a knighthood as well as the part of Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia. Arthur Seaton would have been proud. Other films of note, The Bourne Movies, little not to like about the actor, quite honestly, Gumshoe, 1971, Shoot the Moon, 1982, Annie, 1982. love that film, Annie. The Dresser, 1983, Under the Volcano, 1984, Erin Brockovich, Oscar-nominated in 2000, and The Bourne Ultimatum, 2007, where he goes toe-to-toe with Matt Damon. Quite an interesting uh, dynamic between the two. One goes in the, on the attack and Albert Finney goes on the attack bat. He's a favourite actor of mine. He is extremely good and good in everything he did, I think. And what's little known about him is that during the late 60s, early 70s, he personally funded a lot of small film wow, projects really? off the ground. So Mike Lee's first film was funded by Albert Finney. It's a terrible film, but you know, <laughs> he still funded it. But he's giving back. He's giving back. I mean, and that's that's incredible. That's just got to be praised when major stars it's, actually put money back into their yeah. own industry to help the next generation coming up. I think that's very noble. I, I think one of the things with Finney, I mean, he was a big explorer. He loved going off to places. So after Murder on the Orient Express, which is the first film I ever saw him in, in the cinema, he had enough because that's me, all the roles too. he was getting. That was the, that was the yeah, first he, time I saw Yeah, him. and uh, he went off and he went exploring. And there was a time in 78 where people thought he was dead because he'd gone into the Amazonian jungle and he wasn't coming out and nobody knew what had happened to him. And then when he come back out, he revitalised by... First he did an album, so he did some songs, and then he made a whole series of films like Looker, Wolfen. I mean, Wolfen is an ecological horror movie which is a great film and, and worthy of rediscovery today. You know, obviously, films like Annie, but then he does something like Shoot the Moon. Yeah. And Shoot the Moon is a story about a marriage breakup directed by Alan Parker. That is very hard, very hard to watch. And Albert Finney and Diane Keaton also starred in the film. They reveal quite a lot about themselves. So he wasn't afraid to take risks. And again, you've got you know, things like The Dresser and Under the Volcano, where he was amazing mm. in. I liked him in uh, Aaron Brockovich. I mean, he was good, but I, I go back and I didn't come on to this till much later. I didn't get a chance to see Saturday night and Sunday morning, and it was just fantastic. You know, you've got this angry young man performance, which, yes, it reflects life at that time, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, but still reflects today what life is like. You know, when you're young, you can do anything. And bit by bit, it's taken away from you and you never realise it and you start to conform. And that's where it comes in in that film. It's an amazing performance, an amazing actor. The range he has, you know, mm. you know, things like Miller's Crossing and then big sort of blockbusters like Skyfall and things like that. Yeah. It's just really, really interesting. And I always like actors that do that, that do a personal film 
and then do the blockbuster and you know and they and they jump between the and two that's interesting jeff because that is happening more and more we are seeing so many actors yeah. do i'll do you know a bit of marvel get a bit of cash and then i'll go and do sort of three or four weirdy indie films that really appeal to me and other people might like for me the person of our generation who does this the best is julianne moore mm, yeah you know yeah. look at the her filmography and it's incredible all in all you know he's an incredible man and he certainly made the most of his talent. Now, the next person we're going to talk about, he was a star in his time, but in my opinion, did not make the most of his talent. And I think he had plenty of it. John Michael Vincent, 1945, also to Feb 2019. This is a personal note, and everything in life is a question of timing. Now, in the case of Mr. Vincent, his cinema star was rising when I started taking a serious interest in the cinema in the 1970s. Before that, he'd been a job in TV actor, you know, in loads of Westerns. Something, in a sense, not too out of place with Once, West, upon, once upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood yeah. So he worked in Westerns like Bonanza, and he was also in The Banana Splits. Not the murdering, axe-killing Banana no, Splits. No, don't destroy my childhood any more than that, as I read it down, please. Going back to Mr. Vincent, it was his tough roles in films like The Mechanic, and White Line Fever, where I first noticed him, he came up in these almost exploitation films of the 70s, mm. went on to films like Bite the Bullet, which I think, had he been around 20 years earlier, would have been a fantastic Western star. And then this Big Wednesday, where I think is the pinnacle of his career. It's an acting masterclass. The film itself is about three surfer friends and follows them through the 1960s. The problem's... John Michael Vincent's character of Matt Johnson has was sadly replicated in his own personal life. He had problems with alcohol and drugs. And I think as he ended the 70s on a real high note, biggest mistake he made was going back into TV where he was a headline star. So he did the mega hit The Winds of War Mm -hmm. with Robert Mitchum. And then he became the highest acting paid TV for a show that I think Neil was glued to every week, Airwolf. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yes. I, I did like Airwolf. I thought it was quite fun. It was. It had quite high production values for the time. Is that the one with the air, the, the uh, helicopter? helicopter. Yeah. It's Borgnine. <laughs> At this point in his career, the drugs, drink, unreliability, and fame really were to catch up with him. I hope and this I, is a life lesson for you, Jeff. Uh, absolutely. So I'll, take, <laughs> I'll take off one of those four, actually. After that, it was a sad decline with many roles in really bad movies. And it was a tragic end, really. You know, his death wasn't even announced until some days after he had died. And it could have been a fantastic career. But I think he was up against it from the start. You know, his grandfather and uncle were career criminals, bank robbers, ended badly. His his father was a severe alcoholic. So when you, you know, he's got to overcome that before you even start. Wasn't he a surfer as well? He he actually could surf for the film, yeah. I mean, last year, and I seem to, I mean, to be fair, I do the selection on these. So, But last year I picked another actor, very talented, just didn't live up to it, was Burt Reynolds. Oh, yes. Although he pushed himself a lot further. He was directing as well as starring in films. You look at these films he did, and, and funny enough, one of John Michael Vincent's best films was with Burt Reynolds. He did Hooper, the stuntman film, which yeah. is a great little movie. But you compare that to roles that he did in, I've said Big Wednesday, but there's also Hard Country in 1981. Yeah, I was going to say Hard Country, yeah. great film. 
excellent films, you know, excellent performances. Again, you can compare him to Kurt Russell. So like Kurt Russell, he came up through the Disney route, did TV route, oh, okay. and then discovered these roles. But Kurt Russell knew how to nurture nurture his talent. Mm-hmm. And Jan Michael Vincent, for me, made the wrong choices and it just went too early, which is a real shame. You know, anybody listening to this, if you haven't seen some of the films that we mentioned, particularly Big Wednesday, I urge you to seek it out and see some real talent on screen there. From an actor who sold his own talent short to one who was constantly working and, like Sid Mead, played a pivotal role in one of my favourite films, Rooker Howard, 1944 to July 2019. The role he will be remembered forever for is as replicant Roy Batty in Blade Runner. It was an unusual performance delivered in a mesmeric style. His speech at the end of the film starting, I have seen things, is one of the best in cinema history. Yeah, careful, because Neil can quote the whole thing. You'll start on it in a minute. <laughs> Prior to Blade Runner, Rooker Hauer had worked in Holland, with his first film in America being the terrorist drama Nighthawks, where he battled a bearded Sylvester Stallone and acted him off the screen. Great film. Uh, great film, yeah. After the success of Blade Runner, Mr. Howard was always working, his lesser efforts forgotten by some sterling work in such movies as The Hitcher, Salem's Lot, and Sin City. It is no wonder the public of the Netherlands voted him their greatest actor of the 20th century in a 1999 poll. Some of his other great films are Spetters, a Dutch film from 19... 19- 18, Lady Hawk, oh, I love this movie, Michelle Pfeiffer, Matthew Broderick, and Rooker Howard with director Richard Donner. What's not to like? I even had the Andrew Powell soundtrack, which was produced by Alan Parsons on cassette. I've got the extended version of oh, that soundtrack. God, of course you will. <laughs> Bloody hell, it's always one up. Yeah. Flesh and Blood. It's always Jeff. <laughs> Great story about Flesh and Blood. So at the time, you know, the film show that Barry Norman used to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he'd taken a sabbatical because he was doing omnibus and things like that. And Michael Parkinson came in and took over some of the shows. And he reviewed, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and he did Flesh and Blood and he walked out of it. He said, oh, there's too much going on in the world to watch rubbish like this in the film. And it's a great film. Flesh and Blood is as realistic a, a portrayal as you'd get in the medieval, the dark ages, as, as anything that's ever been captured on screen. Great film. As opposed to Lady Hawk, which was... <laughs> Just but good fun. Good it was fun. Good fun. It was yeah. great fun. Yeah, yeah. Blind Fury in '89 and Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, are uh, director Doyle to me. Uh, the sister brothers. Oddly, he appears as a corpse in this movie. Not prophetic. Yeah, delivers no dialogue and doesn't react or interact with any of the characters, and still manages to be awesome. Thanks, Mr. Howard. You made my cinema visits a constant joy. One of the things of Rutger Hauer I liked, he wasn't afraid to be daring. I mean, The Hitcher, a film I can't believe either of you two have ever seen, is just, <laughs> it's just a brilliant piece of work. And well, we'll have to take your word on that. He's chillingly evil in there. And films like Turkish Delight, Flesh and Blood have already mentioned. But in his personal life, you know, he's, he was a key environmentalist, put a lot of money into that, and a big supporter of AIDS charities. So, um, genuinely good person, genuinely all round good guy, and a sad loss. And finally, Neil Peter Fonda, 1940 to August 2019, son of Henry Fonda, brother to Jane Fonda, and father of Bridget Fonda. 
part of an acting dynasty who played his part in changing Hollywood forever with his writing and acting in Easy Rider. Without that film, the cinema of the 1970s, where the director was king, would never have happened. Prior to Easy Rider, Mr Fonda was best known for making a couple of films which got in a lot of trouble with the British censors, being The Wild Angels and The Trip. You ever seen any of them? I've seen why, Easy why Rider, I, obviously. No, know? no, The Wild Angels. Or, or why do I thing? know The Wild Angels? Is that a Hell's Angel film? Yeah, I think yeah, I... might have done, yeah. Yeah, I think that was a big thing in the uh, 70s, people yeah. going to see that. Very much of the counterculture, Peter Fonda followed up Easy Rider by starring in and directing The Hired Hand, a film which has garnered much acclaim in recent years. After that, Peter Fonda alternated between directing and acting. Along the way, there was the impressive Ride with the Devil, Bodies Rest and Motion, and his highly acclaimed Oscar-nominated turn in Yuli's Gold. Some of his other films? Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, 92 in the Shade, The Limey, 310 to Yuma, Boundaries. For me, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry is a classic car-chasing film. It's one of the greats. Peter Fonda, Susan George, just an amazing, well-done film. Ride with the Devil also, where he played in with Warren Oates, where they're being chased by Satanists. Huge film on Neil's uh, itinerary. Really great films. Knew how to do the exploitation film, but as he moved on in his career, he did a number of others. Never up there with his father and sister, but, you know, Easy Rider on its own is enough of a credit, I think. Uh, Easy Rider, very iconic. I mean, I had the poster of him and Dennis Hopper on my bedroom wall as a teenager, just, just like millions of other kids. Yeah, see, Neil had Donny Osmond. Yeah. <laughs> For the purposes of accuracy, no, he didn't. It was Marie Debbie Osmond. Debbie Harry, maybe. Grief. <laughs> <laughs> I had Susie from Susie and the Banshees, and I don't know what that says about me. Yeah, very, okay. Quite a lot, Graham. <laughs> so apart from Easy Rider and 310 to Yuma, I'm sorry to say I haven't seen, I've seen very little um, 310 to Yuma. Yeah, I love both of those, but uh, yeah, very um, niche director and actor, I think. And, and to the end... Anti-Trump. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. I mean, he, kind of, went a, he kind of went against all his dad's uh, type stuff, didn't he? Doing LSD and doing all these strange films yeah. while either... Not not as much as his sister when she did Barbarella and Henry Fonda no. said, do I have to get naked as well? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he either did films on LSD or f- films about LSD mm. in a lot of cases. I thought it was very good. It was... It, living in his dad's shadow most of the time, unfortunately. Thank you to all those individuals and the many more not mentioned who have enriched our lives. Thank you, Neil. Ending our look back at 2019, let's hand out our awards. Do you know what, lads? We should be suited and booted for this occasion, not just sitting around in jeans and T-shirts and whatever it is you're wearing, Neil. Chinos and a polo shirt always be ready to play golf. Is your dress sense always be ready to sell the big issue outside the co-op? We don't have a co-op, yeah. (laughs) Enough, you two. Jeff, please let us get this ceremony underway. Please. That was good, good, Neil. Um, Okay, let's start the awards with the big one. 
Graham has been waiting all year for this. Oh, hell. It's the Gibson Award for the best Mel Gibson movie of the year. How is this a big one? He's only made one film during the year. Yeah, but it was a classic though, wasn't it, eh? No, it was shit. I am, of course, referring, and I think Graham might have mixed his films up here, (laughs) I am, of course, referring to the fantastic Dragged Across Concrete. The male lead actor is racist and sexist, so it wasn't much of a stretch for Mr Gibson, was it? Oh, it's irony coming from you, Neil. Um, and he was sober in it oh, most yeah. of the time, well, so we, that's... We assume. We hope he was sober, yeah. OK. It was so special, the cinema laid on a private screening just for us. So <laughs> no, it was a public screening and only us were in it. And the guy at the desk said, are you sure you're going to the right <laughs> film? And shook his head. <laughs> We've as he got others, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even the guy on the desk tried to talk us out it of it. It was our best cinema out into Bristol <laughs> ever. Didn't he? Didn't he? At least we saw a film. Yeah, oh, that's right. For yeah. God's <laughs> sake, guys, are you ever going to let that drop? No. D- didn't they, one of the guys in the cinema come in and ask us if we needed any more popcorn or anything? <laughs> yes, Wasn't that did. the one? Do you need any more heroin? That's <laughs> the only way I'm going to Do you that? need your heads examined? <laughs> <laughs> It was, a, it was a great film that dealt, was with, the, dealt with the human condition. It was, it was shocking. It should have been in our top ten, but there was censorship going on there. <laughs> uh, no way. Great award. Sorry, Mel can't be here in person to accept it. Let's move on to the next award. I'm glad we all agreed with that one. <laughs> the next award, the Star Wars Award for the Most Pointless Sequel. There have been too many to choose from this year, haven't there? True, but only one winner can there be. It has to be Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, no, 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 no. Angel has fallen, surely. Completely and utterly unnecessary. And it's terrible. Right, two things. One, it's classic. And two, it has Gerard Butler. <laughs> oh, God, I'm conflicted. I hated Rise of the Skywalker, but anything with Gerard Butler... Oh, I hated it. I, I mean, it's, it's my, very... No, that's my childhood ruined. That is, they yeah. actually set out deliberately to ruin my childhood. If they'd gone from Last of the Mohicans and then Mohicans. continued with that, I think it would have been a really good film. Exactly. But they went back and did all the fanboy crap. But it's still, I still enjoyed it, no, even though no. there's so many nods to all the other films. It's yeah. embarrassing. Yeah. Look, look, JJ, ignore everything that was right about The Last Jedi. Just do some nonsense like you did with The Force Awakens. We'll pretend it's another remake. Doesn't work. So the award goes to Star Angel Wars. Has Fallen. No, 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 no. Look, M- move I've on. I've got the inscription here. It says on there Star Wars. It won't be after I've um, had a go at it. Next. Well, anyway, uh, Richard E. Grant lives near us, so you can come and pick it up. Richard, if you're in. <laughs> if you're listening to the show, Richard, <laughs> friend of the show, let's, let's claim that. Right. Another one I feel vindicated in selecting. So now. The Braveheart Award for the most annoying rewriting of history. <laughs> Jeff, I feel you've got a score to settle here. And you'd be right, Graham, because the winner is Mary, Queen of Scots. I didn't see it following your review, but it wasn't that bad. We had Peter Lou, didn't we? Or we was did that have 2018? Peter Lou the year before. Oh, oh, damnation. Okay. What about Midway? Midway that historically, was terrible. It was historically correct. The current war. What did we all think of the current war? But historically, it was quite close no, on being it correct. Was not rubbish. Correct. Sorry, do you see these lights? That's electricity. The current war, okay? Mary, Queen of Scots, they never met. They hated each other. She spoke French. Yeah, that's right. And that's the other thing. She has a bloody Scottish accent. Good point, Graham. Oh, Is that it? But it's Saoirse Ronan. I mean, and anyway, Margot Robbie. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, the award goes to, uh, it still Mary. goes to Peter Lou, even though it wasn't last year. <laughs> no, no. Because it, it was it that poor. It doesn't work like that because every year, I'm just trying to think of a really bad movie. Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, in the car park again. Carry on. Okay. Next. Moving on. The Hobbit Trilogy Award for the most gratuitous cash-in. Oh, the Hobbit. That is so many that could fill the role. We could just call it Disney, couldn't we? <laughs> uh, Dumbo or Aladdin, Lion King, all unnecessary. Neil, you're supposed to open the envelope first, not guess, even though you've got it right. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, it's I Disney's... didn't read your bit. <laughs> it's Disney's remaking of their animation back catalogue as computer animation and passing it off as real. That Which, said, that said, I think the um, Mulan, Mulan. I think Mulan that might looks be good. good. Yeah, but that's not computer animated, is oh, it? That's it's, a good point. It, it's real people, and also it's not in 2019. I think you're losing the point, here, Neil. Of like, you do these awards for the well, year in question. We were we were slating the back catalogue being rebuilt. And and no, then, no, but they were all it, made last year. In his defence, he has had one beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, true, that's true. yeah, that's a good point. Sniff of the barmaid's apron. <laughs> Good point. And a few wine Move gums. Move on. Oh, wine gums. Oh, damn. We've let him mix his drinks. <laughs> now we're in trouble. Who knows what could get said in the last Tea part of this beer. show. Good mug you got there for your tea, Neil, I know. No, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> okay, moving on, because I can't even read out on the air what that mug is. No. <laughs> no um, but if anybody who's interested... Please drop us a line and we'll let you know. We but please don't, n- please don't sue us. Um, we will not be putting a picture of that in the show notes. Nope. Definitely not. <laughs> okay, next award. The Heaven's Gate Award for the most <laughs> embarrassing failure. Heaven's Gate wins that every year, I think, isn't it? Yeah, well, there we go. It's another example of it. Don't you dare pick Avengers Endgame. Don't. Out in the car park right now if you do. Unfortunately, the word failure cropped in there, and even I, as much as I dislike that film, can't call it a failure. Who knows, though, because Marvel are definitely going down, because all their films last year were terrible. So maybe in a future year, do you see that, Neil? In a future year, they might get it. But the winner this year, and I don't think I'll get any disagreement from either of you, is Hellboy. Oh, no. justified. Absolutely. No, nothing 100%. from me. Shocking film. Beyond bad. Love Neil Marshall's work, but he wouldn't get involved with the he writer of the great Didn't he get kicked off? In, in the end, I think, for, for editing, but he wasn't involved. You know, he didn't involve the creator of it, didn't reach out to Guillermo del Toro. Even you know, the lead actor was not very good. Who's the lead actor in it, Neil? The guy from Stranger Stranger Things. He's actually quite Things. good in Stranger Things. He's brilliant so it can't have just been him. David Harbour. David Lovely Harbour, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was awful. We all agree. Yeah, shocking. So let's move on to the penultimate award. The Steven Seagal Award <laughs> for the actor you don't want to see next year. Oh, now, well, last year we handed this to James Corden and he came back at us with Cats the Bastard. Oh. <laughs> um, this year it goes to... Mel uh, Gibson. Uh, uh, no, James Corden again, just because he's crap all the time. Yes. Or Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler. Or must be Paul's crush, Rebel Wilson. Oh, crush is literally <laughs> if she <laughs> fell on top of you. <laughs> oh, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. Sorry, what has Owen Wilson done last year? <laughs> Nothing, but thank so God. So he can't be in the but, nomination? But, okay, let me explain awards no, no, to you, no, right? No, the awards no, are set for a year, Taylor right? Swift. Taylor Swift. Yes. Right, have you seen, we haven't seen Cat, so we can't no. comment on it. This is just right. all awards, our... Awards? Awards? A set for a particular year. So January 2019 to December 2019. If they appear in that, 
they can qualify. But we're just following you, Jeff. You use every At The Flick show as an opportunity to get your prejudices out on the table and now we're getting our prejudices yes. out on the yeah. table and you don't like it. And it's a joint, uh, <laughs> joint award. It's going to a joint uh, number of people. It's going to James Corden, Gerard Butler, Rebel Wilson, Owen Wilson, yeah. Bruce Willis and... Right, OK, Neil. Mel, Whips, Neil. Mel Gibson. Neil, Mel Gibson. Neil, Neil you need that LSD and you need to sit down. The award goes to... Bruce Willis. Oh, justified. Fully For justified. Basically <laughs> giving up and not even bothering anymore. Glass <laughs> yawned his way through it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, fair enough. Motherless yeah. Brooklyn, which is a really good film. Phoned uh, it in. Just phoned it in. Luckily, he wasn't in it that long. He got killed off quite quickly, but wasn't quick enough, really. You only got somebody like Ed Norton, who's doing such an amazing performance, which has been overlooked in all the awards, which is a real shame. Now it's gone quiet. Let's go to the <laughs> final award of the night. The Wouldn't Even Scare Neil Horror Movie Award goes to... I don't care what you pick. I'm not watching it. The Curse of La Llorona. That's a remake and critically planned. One, it's not a remake. Critically panned. It was critically panned, but it's, it's not a remake. It is. The Curse of La Llorona was done in... Um, hang on. Paul. In a foreign language, so you've was probably it? not oh, seen it. See it. It's part of the Conjuring universe. Oh, that word universe. I hate it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I, I would have thought um, Ready or Not, which I honestly I will see, promise. Or Parasite, which kind of started last year in most countries apart from the yeah, UK. Yeah, unless you illegally copied it and watched it. Yeah. I didn't. No, I would say Ready or Not. I don't think, uh, I, at least it was um, a, a well-made film. And you guys... And you, I loved you it. Raved Ready, I, I raved about Ready or Not. Whereas Curse of La La Rona, you thought was terrible. Yeah, but it's so terrible. So I win. Scare you. Uh, so on, I win Jeff. that award. Are, are you aware <laughs> of the of the phenomenon that is trailers? I've seen La La Rona trailer. It scared the living daylight. <laughs> yes. So I'm not watching that one, but I will watch Ready or Not. In fact, I've just bought it on Apple. Now, dear listener, there were other awards, but they've been banned by Graham. <laughs> so I will read them out. I suspect there might be some beeping going on. So you may not hear them. You'll, you'll probably hear what film won the award, but not what it was nominated for. <laughs> so number one, the lesbian <laughs> scene of the year goes to Booksmart. No. Number two. We may miss out number one. You, dear listener, you may be confused that we start at number two. <laughs> number two, the Boris Johnson family film of the year. You never know how many will turn up for the award. No, no. no, Instant family. Oh, very clever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Neil and Graham Award for the best double act goes to Stan and Ollie. Oh, we wish. (laughs) Both of them saw them on stage. I was too young. Oh. oh. (laughs) And the film that shouldn't be released in Australia. Oh. (laughs) No. No. So just two then. Dozens of people are dead and billions of animals. You can't say that. No. No. Okay. Stop beating about the bush that's and tell enough us what of what our think. awards before it descends into chaos and I can't I think stop it already them has, but carry on. <laughs> Let's talk about what we're looking forward to watching in 2020. At okay. Let's get out that crystal ball literally in Neil's case, and look forward to what we think will be worth seeing in 2020. I, for one, would like to see Neil finish a round of golf without needing an oxygen tank. (laughs) (laughs) 
As for films, well, these four are very much on my to-see list. The Woman in the Window. In May, I spoke about this. That's May last year, lads. You see how this works again, different years. It's based on a fantastic book. It's a sort of cross between Vertigo and The Girl in the Train. Amy Adams, Gary Oldman and Julianne Moore star. Adams plays a recluse who spends her time watching The Neighbours. Things take a turn for the worst when a seemingly perfect family moves in across the road and bad things start to happen. Shades there of Rear Window. There are a few twists and turns after that. Now, it's directed by Joe Wright, who directed... Atonement. Atonement and Pride and Prejudice. I am expecting big things from this. On the, your own? No, no, I think that's going to be good. The King's Men in September. It's the prequel to the King's Men films, which set around the time of World War I, almost like called it another 1917. We covered this in our movie news columns before, and it is the same level of fun and violence of the others in the series. And again, I think it's going to be a blast. It's a great cast, which includes Ralph Fiennes, leader of the Kingsmen, and of course, not to be confused with the M, Gemma Atherton, Charles Dance, and Tom Hollander. The same month, September, also sees the release of Last Night in Soho, directed by Edgar Wright. I'm sure that'll be on Neil's list as well. What mm-hmm. little we know of this time-travelling light horror movie <laughs> is that it's mainly set in the 1960s and stars modern-day scream queen Anna Taylor-Joy from The Witch, Matt Smith, formerly Doctor Who, Diana Rigg and Terence Stamp. I think it's a fair bet to say, expect the unexpected and hopefully lots of great 60s music. Finally, and one the whole team are waiting to buy their tickets for, Film Graham has already covered in our movie news. Peter Rabbit 2, oh, The Runaway. Oh, no. More right. James Corden, more <laughs> rabbit fun. And, of course, part of it filmed in Gloucestershire. Mind you, part of it was also filmed in Australia. I guess you'll be able to tell the difference these days that the landscape in the UK <laughs> no, countryside no, no, no. is still no, green. No, 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 no. Neil, over to you. What are you looking forward and to? And there's our, our Australian <laughs> listeners just gone. Yes, absolutely. I want to see Parasite again. It opens in Britain in uh, again? February. Again? Uh, yeah, so a brilliant film. It, I I, when you say again, it sounds like you've seen it once. Hopefully see it in the cinema, ignoring Jeff. I'll try not to do too many that I think Graham is going to say, but Bond is back. No time to die, and I cannot wait And you know who the, the big villain is in No Time to Die? Uh, it's um, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> yeah, playing They who? dug him up, have they? Yeah. Playing who? Who is oh. he playing? I've got. I've tried. Big not to... big internet theory. All villains okay. must be South African. No, <laughs> the big internet rumor is that he's playing Doctor No. Ooh, because the clue is in the name of the f- the film. No time to die. Ah, yeah, and it's very interesting. The next one, nineteen seventeen. I haven't seen it yet, so I need to get and see that. Partly for the story, but uh, partly for the cinematography, which apparently is extraordinary. That might be very good. I'm hoping it is. Uh, Wonder Woman, 1984. Sequel, yes, but still worth seeing, I think. Another sequel, sadly, uh, Kenneth Branagh doing Death on the Nile, which is uh, mentioned at the end of Murder on the Orient Express because he has to go back to Egypt. and. The sad thing with that, I love Murder on the Orient Express, is you think, okay, you've got all the Agatha Christie books now. Let's do something that's never been done. No, we'll go back and redo Death on the Nile. Why couldn't you pick one of the other? Death in the Clouds is wonderful, never been done. The Mousetrap. He's following Peter you can't Houston. Film the still, still can't film the, the Mousetrap. So the story of the Mousetrap is that when yeah. the film rights were sold, it has to come out of London first. 
So the company that bought it, which has long since gone bust, the agreement on filming The Mousetrap is it must finish on stage in London. Oh, well, that's never going to happen. Well, exactly. So that's why nobody can ever film it. And the next one is Bloodshot. What? Oh, sorry, Vin Diesel's in it. Forget that. No, hang on, I don't know that film. What's it about, Neil? <laughs> no idea. Vin Diesel's in it, so That's... forget that one. <laughs> you know your list of people you never want to see in a movie again. We yeah, should have gone with it. Vin Diesel. Yeah. Hang on, you've seen Fast and the Furious this year. I'm looking forward to that. No. Next one is Birds oh, of Prey. Yes, More yeah. of Margot Robbie, Robbie as Harley Quinn. Artemis Fowl, I'm fairly sure uh, Graham's going to choose this one as well. Yep. Uh, read the books, the kids, read them myself as well. Fingers crossed for that one. Hope they don't do the same as they did to Mortal Engines, but hopefully it'll be good. Again, that was due for release summer last year and they pulled it for this year. Trailer looks great. So no, yeah, yeah. I don't know the story. Uh, it could but just be clashes, so we don't know. Then Ridley Scott is back with oh. The Last Duel, starring Adam Driver, Jodie Comer, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Looks interesting. 83, the story of India's, India's incredible Cricket World Cup victory in 1983, which I, I suspect is a Bollywood film, so it may may not get a showing. So but, it'll probably um, last five days and end in nothing. No, no, it's, it's uh, one-day internationals. One-day internationals, okay. yeah, it's the World Cup. So my list is uh, rather extensive, sorry, and I'm just going to rush through these. A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Yes, I know our American listeners are thinking, hang on, that was last year, but it's coming out in the UK in January. Yeah, go figure. Uh, Queen and Slim, I'm looking forward to, following a glowing review from Phil Fosterver. And add to that, don't forget, Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood got glowing reviews from... Uh I think both Lucy and, and Emma. Emma. Yeah, definitely. Uh, sorry, eclectic Emma from Bristol, as I call her. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Yes, I know Terry Gilliam is a total... No, he tells the truth. He's a total bell end. He tells the truth. And his remarks about Me Too were disgusting. But the movie looks great and Adam Driver is in it to cleanse his soul after Star Wars, probably. Parasite, because Lucy mm-hmm. Deck and everyone who's seen it loved it. What's the point of cinema if you lot are just doing illegal downloads of everything? <laughs> it wasn't illegal. <laughs> They should release films at the same time across the world. Colour Out of Space, Eclectic Emma from Bristol, loved it, and it's Nicolas Cage. A Quiet Place Part 2, we get it in March, so just in time for my annual colonic irrigation. No, that, that's, that's Candyman. <laughs> that's okay. Well, uh, Mulan, uh, this might be a Disney remake I might like. I live in hope. Uh, no Time to Die, it's Bond, and I've seen the other 26. And before you jump in, Jeff, I'm including the two non-Eon films, Casino Royale, 1967, and Never Say Never Again, 1983. Casino Royale is probably the one of the worst films I've ever seen. Oh, shockingly bad. <laughs> it is shocking. Yeah, I just thought first, I'd say that. Who was the first ever actor to portray James Bond? It was the guy who used to do um, Blockbuster. Bob Holness. Is Bob correct. Holness. Yeah. On, a, on, radio. on the radio. Yeah. yeah. Carry on. <sighs> right. Okay. Black Widow. Duh. Marvel. Yep. Greyhound. We mentioned it back in show five in uh, June 2018. Uh, that's uh, looking really good. Artemis Fowl. Oh, hold yeah. on. Greyhound. Is it about dog racing then? No, it's not. It's about convoys going across the North Atlantic in the Second World War. Stars Tom Hanks. And Stephen Graham. And based on a C.S. Forrester novel. You were there in show five, yes, you should not remember. Not in World War Two, Graham, but no. no, I was there in show five, yeah. <laughs> Neither was I, just before anybody says that. <laughs> um, Artemis Fowl, just like Neil, I read the books to my kids and would like to see how the filmmakers have ruined their childhood. Okay, Wonder Woman uh, 1984, duh, superhero movie, but really, Gal Gadot 
swoon. <laughs> You're a granddad. I know, crying but out she's loud. still gorgeous. Okay, Tenant Director Doyle uh, always delivers the goods. Not this time. You don't think so? No, I think no. this one. It it looks too much like Inception for me, and I I just think the way they marketing it is there's almost an arrogance in the marketing. I I think this one. I hope I'm wrong. I do like um, Director Doyle's work. That would be Chris Nolan to most <laughs> Chris of Chris Nolan to most um, But I just think that I'm just a bit worried on that as well. And by the way, just going back to Wonder Woman there, Gail Gadot, Corbin's pinup girl. You're kidding. No, she's Jewish. Oh. Um, <laughs> Jesus wept. God, that's very funny. I like that. Yeah. Okay, uh, next is Eternals. The TV show was a mess, so I'm hoping this will be a lot better. Frankly, it couldn't be worse. Is, is that the show where they were all on the moon and coming yes. down to Earth? And finally, Dune, one of the greatest sci-fi books of all time. It's directed by Denis Villeneuve. I think it's going to be great. The David Lynch version lacked something, and it had a crap ending. Mm-hmm. So hopefully... Yeah, a very disappointing ending, I'll give that, but I did like the Lynch version. I the thought it was okay. It was great. The soundtrack sting, was shocking. The soundtrack was terrible. It did have sting. Soundtrack is brilliant. Toto. I've Toto. Oh, for crying awesome. out loud. Awesome. Well, this back to the car park. <laughs> <laughs> oh. If we're going to fight over Toto, can I you think just I'll finish first? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's it. That's so my um, list. I think fifteen films. I think I'm looking agree. forward to. There's something for everybody there. Yes. There is something for everybody. Yep. Even for you, Jeff. Even for me, as I pick some. So I think that's quite good. Peter Rabbit two. Here we come. You dare. We. You dare. <laughs> we music, are not going to see Peter break, Rabbit music two. Music break. Music break. So, Jeff, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flick show is in the can. Another successful year, I think, a drink's called for. Good idea. You're around, Jeff. That'll be three waters, please, will you? Isn't that a district council in Hertfordshire? That's three rivers. Because you're not doing the... uh, That would go down well in Australia. Australia. Three waters. Oh, for crying out loud, Jeff. Really? So it only remains for us to say... Thanks Thanks for for listening and and goodbye. goodbye. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.